Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, May the 26th, 2017. This episode, 2012 of the Survival Podcast, the year the world ended. It didn't end. Remember all that crap? Remember what Jack told you? All the big end, high end stuff you wanted to buy, wait till January 2013 and buy that shit on Craigslist. Some of you listened, and I even got a few emails about people getting sweet deals on generators. But it's not just episode 2012, which was the end of the world, which makes this a great episode. It's Friday! 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 That's right, it is the monster episode of the week because it is the Expert Council Q&A show. You guys wrote this show, and the Expert Council did the rest of the work. What are we going to talk about today? How about turning old row crop land into pasture with Darby Simpson? How about sharpening a chef's knife with a whetstone by Patrick Rorman? Uh, how about fighting load carriers and ruck packs from Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus? How about the health benefits of blackstrap molasses? from that old Dr. Bones himself, and the reasons to not modify your vehicle's electronics with some humor and some added production value from the great Stephen Harris. We also have cooking heirloom pork shoulder from Chef Keith Snow, and Jack here, myself, will weigh in on an article going around right now along with a video that discusses why high school valedictorians are generally successful, but they're not world changers, and what that says about our education system, and it's It's not all bad. It's not all bad. Maybe it'll give me a chance to uh, to prove to some of you guys that are diehard believers in the conventional education system. I see some good in it, but I'm sure I'll still get a lot of hate mail for this one, which means it's probably worth doing. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheets, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Of course, the year of the episode, the year 2012. The year the world was supposed to end, but because... We actually have a history wiki, and the world didn't end. There's not anything about that in it this year. We have two from Alex Shrugged. One is, it's the Girls Gone Wild Secret Service Edition. And the other one from Alex Shrugged today is, here comes Superstorm Sandy. From Southpaw Bed, we have a YouTube video, Kills the Ambassador, with a big question mark, because, of course, that's not true. Notable deaths this year, Neil Armstrong, age 82, complications after bypass surgery, first man on the moon, he's asked... His family asked that when you see the moon, you think of Neil Armstrong and give him a wink. Hashtag wink at the moon. 
Sally Ride, age 61, of pancreatic cancer, first woman in space, a very private woman in her personal life. Rodney King, age 47, accidental drowning after alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, and PCP use. His public beating by police and subsequent exoneration of the police sparked a riot. I think some people would look at that and say, well, maybe we don't really understand why this guy got beaten if he was all like into drugs. And he, he, hold on, hold on. Let me tell you what happened to Rodney King. Rodney King eventually won a civil suit for millions of dollars, never had had money in his life, didn't know how to handle his money, and that resulted in a lifestyle that ended in his death due to substance abuse. That's what happened to Rodney King. If you want to dig into the information, you can for yourself. Whitney Houston died this year, age 48, accidental drowning after cocaine and marijuana use. Actress and singer seemed bent on destroying herself. Another example of money killing people right there. This year in film, The Avengers, The Dark Knight Rises, The Hunger Games, Wreck-It Ralph, and Brave. I watched Brave because we have nieces, and uh, it was all right, pretty good. I haven't seen Wreck-It Ralph. I heard that's okay, but uh, really I have not seen the rest of these movies. I just haven't. And I even like the, uh, the comic book movies, but I've never seen The Avengers or The Dark Knight Rises. Um, let's see. This year in TV, Anger Management, HBO's Girls. Lilyhammer, which is the first original Netflix series, and patently offensive language is allowed on TV now, but without a clear definition of what patently offensive means, free speech is infringed. Uh, this year in music, Set Fire to the Rain by Adele, The One That Got Away by Katy Perry, True Believers by Darius Rucker, and We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together by Taylor Swift. And Alex says it's cute. I think Taylor Swift's just a better little chick myself anyway. I just, just, I don't get it. I don't get how she's successful. I don't get it. Anyway, um, this year in video games, Street Fighter and Mega Man are 25 years. I, bet you, I should back up and say, I don't understand how Katy Perry's successful either. So it's not, not one-off. There's a lot of people I don't get how they're successful. So it ain't personal. Uh, Street Fighter and Mega Man are 25 years old this year in video games. The Walking Dead for PlayStation 3, the critics love it, and the critics hate anything that comes from a movie or TV. So this is something, really. Uh, Mass Effect 3 for Xbox 360, the third of the trilogy. And Xenoblade Chronicles for the Wii, fantasy sci-fi role-playing game. In other news, 12 are dead and 58 injured after a mass murderer enters a Denver movie theater showing The Dark Knight Rises. James Holmes was masked and, and claimed to be the Joker. Uh, 20 children are murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Eight adults are also murdered by Adam Lanza in the aftermath of discussion about gun control and video games. Uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is hospitalized after falling at home. Doctors discover a blood clot. Obamacare is ruled constitutional under the Taxing and Spending Clause. Uh, more info on that. Chief Justice Roberts ruled that forcing people to buy health insurance was a proper use of the taxing powers of Congress. Alex Shrug says, what a load of crap. This is why no one should depend on the Supreme Court to fix what Congress has done. Indeed. Uh, marijuana is now legal in Colorado and Washington State. Uh, Alex says it's still legal federally, but the feds are looking the other way. Uh, Alex says, my only objection is the current rehab resources are not adequate to handle the inevitable X number of people who will get trapped. The same is true for alcohol in that sense. We will adjust as Alex shrugged. My exception to that is I haven't seen a lot of people that smoke marijuana that need rehab. I haven't seen a lot of people in withdrawal from marijuana. I haven't seen a lot of people that smoke marijuana completely destroy their lives if they stick to smoking marijuana. I've seen a lot of people kind of just sit around and not accomplish anything smoking marijuana. I've seen people that do a lot of really cool shit smoke marijuana. And I've seen a lot of people that don't smoke marijuana sit around and not get shit done too. So I just, 
I'm not too concerned about that. Um, gay mar marriage is legalized this year in Maine, Maryland, and Washington State. There's been a growing trend. Uh, and Alex says the state needs the states need to get out of the marriage business. I agree. The state has no business in marriage. Uh, Dallas declares a state of emergency after an outbreak of the West Nile virus. 17 are dead in Dallas. Across the U.S., 243 are dead out of 5,387 cases this year. Aerial spray and insecticide over Dallas begins. Uh, don't breathe in, says Alex. Yeah, you're probably more in danger from the spray than from the freaking West Nile virus. Uh, a solar coronal mass ejection barely misses Earth. And Google self-driving cars are licensed for testing in Nevada, says, and it requires a licensed driver. Um, and Alex says, I'm handicapped, so it won't help me if I need a license. I think by the time these things are deployed, it will help anybody because you won't need a license. Okay. Um, well, actually, I don't know about that. I think the first generation of self-driving cars will require a license to operate because uh, the driver will be required to sit behind the wheel and be there in case something goes wrong. Because I think the first generation of self-driving cars will like alert you, actually. What I think is there will be certain places that it can operate and certain places that they can't. And it'll basically set off an alarm and say, like, five minutes, you'll have to take over, that type of thing. Uh, I think is how the first generation is honestly going to work. Anyway, let's take a look at Here Comes Superstorm Sandy, since it was such a big event that I think all of us probably remember at this point. Um, it's not a very strong storm, as such things are measured. It's called Superstorm Sandy because it is no longer a hurricane. Its winds have been dying down, which is why it comes as such a surprise when it causes so much damage and loss of life at the end of its run. Sandy began as a tropical storm that developed into a Category 3 hurricane. It hit the Bahamas hard and then headed north along the Atlantic. It seemed like New York and New Jersey had dodged a bullet when the storm suddenly hooks and comes right at them. Even though Sandy is weakened, it covers a very large area. Sustained winds, even if lower than hurricane force, can be devastating <coughs> if maintained for long enough. The tide is coming in, making the, surge, the storm surge even greater. The waters surround a neighborhood just as a fire breaks out. They are lost. Firefighters can't get to the blaze. A crane collapses. New Jersey's boardwalks and amusement rides slip into the sea. When it's all over, 117 are dead in the New York, New Jersey area. 40 deaths were from mandatory evacuation area A. They received their notices, but some people insisted that it couldn't happen to them. Homes are lost. Power is out. Yet here and there, some people are prepared. Quietly, extension cords are shared between friends. It's good to have friends. Governor Christie reaches out to President Obama for help. It's their job, but the image is burned into the minds of the public. As Christie walks along the beach with Obama, one can almost imagine them holding hands. With only days until the election, Sandy's aftermath is dominating the news. Mitt Romney can't get a word in edgewise. President Obama coasts to re-election. Sandy's damage was costly indeed. My take by Alex Shrugged. Well, Romney might have lost anyway. No sense in whining about it now. And speaking of whining, I was on a discussion forum right after Sandy had passed. I was amazed that New Yorkers were angry over resistance in Congress for a relief package to help New York. I asked why New York should get any special relief. After all, weren't New Yorkers aware that hurricanes happened in their neck of the woods? Why weren't they prepared? They replied that Sandy came as a complete surprise, but surprise to whom? I'm living in Texas. I was tracking the storm out of keen interest, and Texas had been hit by Hurricane Rita, a real hurricane. It destroyed Houston and Galveston a few years back. They jumped on that. Texas had received aid, but it was the normal FEMA aid. We didn't ask for more aid because Texans realized hurricanes happen. We were prepared to handle the extra cost that such events inevitably require. They couldn't see the light. It must have been a very dark place where their heads were. Sand. I, I mean, their heads were in the sand. I think their heads were up their ass, personally. Here's what I think. I think that the actual lesson here in, in Alex's interaction with these people on this forum is how people think of entitlement. 
I, I, I know you're like, what? I, that, that's not what I got. Okay, well, I'm going to give it to you. So if, if Superstorm Sandy had happened and the governor of New York had said, we have, we have asked for federal help through the FEMA aid program and they are delivering it. Everybody would have said, yay! But there was politics going on because, gee, an election was coming and they knew that was a good thing to shake shit up with. And even if Democrats were holding out, which they didn't have to because they had a minority in the House at this point, um, what, they, what they could do was just put out the idea of additional aid. So there's a political game being played there. But here's the bigger thing. As soon as the people that were affected or knew somebody that was affected heard that, well, if they can do it, they should do it. Wait a minute. They said they were going to do it. We're entitled to it. That's how easy it is to manipulate people in a system like we have in America with our government and where you can take money from one party and give it to another through a process known as theft. I mean taxation. I mean theft. That's how that works. That's why they want to be able to do it. Because the minute the people heard this, well, you should do it, with no understanding of the facts. No understanding of the facts that there were billions of dollars of aid already available and coming and in process. But as soon as you say, well, you want more, and this is, this is the political game. You put up a proposal that we should provide more funding to fill in the blank. And then you vilify anybody that says we shouldn't because who, who, who doesn't think we should put up more funding for providing flowers to orphans? That's, see, that's how you do that. You take something that, like, well, obviously we should help these people, and then you just up the ante. Well, we should do more. Well, I, I think we're doing enough. I think we have a system in place for this. It's an operation right now. Oh, look at you. Look at you. And then the people go, evil. I have very little faith left in the political apparatus of my country because our people are so easily manipulated. Most people wouldn't stop for a second to even examine that situation. They would just say, well, yeah, look at all the pictures on TV. we got to have to help those people as though no one was doing it. As though no one was doing it. Just my thoughts. want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vic Rontala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. And with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, our first call today. This one is for Darby Simpson, full-time farmer. And a uh, guy that's out there trying to help other people that want to uh, go out into full-time farming or part-time farming or just want to be able to raise livestock and do cool things that are farmer-ish on their homestead for themselves and their family and maybe their next-door neighbor. We have a question for Darby today on 
old row cropland that was you know cropped over and over again and and turning that into pasture with that Darby go ahead and take it away man Hello everyone this is Darby Simpson of the Grassfed Life podcast and darbysimpson.com here to answer another question for the expert council This week I've got a question from Megan about how she should best go about transitioning a 20-acre cornfield into a perennial livestock pasture. Uh, she's wanted to do this in a uh, non-disruptive but efficient way, and she's got a few, you know, different pieces of context here than like what I would have. And kind of what I want to get into first as, uh, as I answer this question for her is, is to bring up her context because context is so important in uh, how each of us might go about deciding what to do or what not to do. Uh, Megan's context is, is totally different than mine. So what I would do with this 20 acres isn't necessarily what she needs to do. Um, and what she points out is that they don't need to turn the fields around overnight. Uh, they're, they're slowly building fence. And, and she says, you know, it's going to be a few years before all this pasture is utilized. So with that in mind, um, it, you know, We'll kind of break this down, and I'm going to answer her questions now. If it was me, what I would do would be totally different because if I were to take over 20 acres, I'm 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 taking on a lease initially. That even though my family owns the land, I'm still leasing it back from my family. I, I didn't get from Megan's email that that she's got that situation going on here, so she's got some time. Uh, in my situation, I got to make that thing cash flow pretty fast, so. Um, I wouldn't really use conventional means to, to go in and get this um, uh, established. Uh, in fact, it'd be very organic uh, in, in nature. But I would go in and disc everything up, not not plow, but disc everything up, and I'd cull the packet, and I'd get a nice, fresh, level uh, bed of dirt to work with, and then I would use some products uh, from a, a company here locally called Organigro out of Newcastle, Indiana, to help uh, get good seed germination, and they've got some organic fertilizers and things of that nature, and I would plant a perennial mix of grasses specifically uh, for my cattle, uh, for what I want to accomplish, and that is putting pounds on beef cattle. That's what I'm after. So I, I you know, that that's how I would typically go about this, but You know, what she's telling us here is that, hey, I don't have to, to, to do all this overnight. We've got time. Um, and kind of what she had been planning to do was to, um, you know, just kind of let this go. And in fact, it's in its third year of being fallow. And, and what she says is that it's about 25% native grasses and 75% being native weeds or what, what us in the grazing world would call forbs because it sounds nicer. They're weeds. And then there's some brambles out there. Uh, also, and, and currently the ground is about 75% covered with vegetation at this point, but, and it's still got some bare spots. And I, I want to point out bare ground is bad. So we do want to address those. Now, conventional wisdom, uh, after a soil test would be that she would put down lime, but she didn't really need fertilizer. Megan, as an aside, I'd tell you to check out Organigro. They've got some really great stuff and it's very inexpensive. Uh, if you've got access to a, a little sprayer, uh, even on for a four wheeler, which isn't that much money. You know, 12 bucks an acre, you can put this stuff on. So as a little quick side note, check them out, Organigro, Newcastle, Indiana. Tell them Darby said hello. Um, 
and she says here, you know, if she was going to go in and, 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 and lime and, and burn this down with herbicide and then fertilize and then seed, it'd cost her about 5,000 bucks. And I, I think that's spot on. Five grand, maybe even closer to six, uh, for, for 20 acres. That's about what it would cost us here. So, uh, but she's, she's not wanting to do that. So the original plan was to, you know, kind of keep this, uh, the, the weeds or forbs, Bush hog down so they couldn't go to seed. And, and Megan, if this is your plan, that's totally fine, but you had better keep those weeds under control because they will be prolific. Um, so if you don't think you can stay on top of them with a bush hog and or your goats, because Megan has goats on the farm right now, if you can't go out there and do it with netting and goats, and before everybody thinks that that's what she should do, covering 20 acres with a handful of goats and netting is a big, big task. It's almost a full-time task. Um, you know, if you can't keep on top of it, then, you know, my advice to you is to disc it up, uh, grasses and all consider that organic matter. Okay. And then do what I just suggested. Now, if you can keep ahead of it with a, with a bush hog, um, and you want to go in and kind of sporadically, you know, drill the seed in, uh, to compete with the weeds and fill in where the ground is still bare, that's fine. Um, you'd mentioned you, that you could do that once a year. I'd tell you to be open to doing it twice a year. Um, I would tell you that you could also do that with a broadcaster and a cultipacker if you don't have access to a, a drill, although your, your county soil department and or NRCS office might either own a drill or have access to a drill or tell you where you can rent a drill cheaply. But you might want to be open to doing that a couple of times a year. If you want to do it this time of year, you've still got a window, but it's closing. And I don't know what region you're in. You didn't tell me, but the window is closing for spring planting. Uh, but you're going to want to put a nice mix of stuff out there. Uh, orchard grass, uh, bluegrass, uh, timothy, uh, two or three varieties of clover, maybe a little bit of alfalfa, okay? Um, and, and get a really nice polyculture going on. I, I know some people are wondering, well, can't you just do this with animals? Can't you just let this thing go and take the animals out there and eventually get this nice perennial system? Yeah, you can. You, you can. It's it's a lot of time. Uh, it, it will take years and years and years and years and years. And, and if you're okay with that, that, that's fine. Again, from my point of view, my context here is I don't have the time financially to, to do that. So... And I get hate mail from people saying, well, you should never have to buy seed. Well, you know, whatever. <laughs> You're not me. I, I've got to turn this dude around and make it cash flow or it doesn't happen. And then I'm doing absolutely nothing with my farm. And, and what good does that do the environment? You know, it's not regenerative at all if I'm broke and can't keep my business open. So there are ways to do that, but it's very difficult and it's very, very labor intensive. So I guess, you know, if you, again, if you can keep on top of it with the bush hog, great. Go for it. Give it a shot. Um, if you can't get a hold of a seed drill, you've probably got a neighbor that's got a cultipacker, uh, which is basically just a, a, uh, a device that's got wheels on it, uh, that you can put weights on and you just run it over the ground. You broadcast seed ahead of it and you run this dude over the ground and it mushes the seeds down into the soil just a, a little bit. You don't want to do it when it's super sloppy out there, but when it's a little tacky, you know, you've had some rain and uh the, the surface is a little tacky, you, can, you know, get those seeds down. I would take uh before you did that, Megan, I would take that bush hog and I would just darn near scalp that ground, just get it as short as you can to give that grass a chance. Um uh, or, and, or, and or legumes, whatever it is you're going to plant. Okay. 
I would definitely do that. Uh, you know, to try and try and knock as the the competition back as much as you can. Okay. And so, you know, you say you've got the goats, you might do some, some grazing in some areas with your goats. Uh, if you've got some of your fence done or if you've got netting, uh, you're mentioning you're going to add, add uh, some variety of cattle I've never heard of, uh, piney wood in the future. And they're, they're both good browsers and that you're okay with having a pasture that's got some weed presence. Um, again, we just want to be careful that, you know, if there's too many weeds, that could be a bad thing. So, you know, how you go about managing that is up to you. Um, it's different than what I would do, but that's okay because it works for you in your context on, on your farm. So, um, I, I would definitely want to get plenty of things out there though, so that you do have a, a good polyculture mix so that nutritional needs are, needs are being met. Um, that's, that's something to consider here. So get cool season and warm season. Different varieties, things that come on at different times of the year. Even there's a variety, even of of fescues that come in, grazing fescues that come in at different times of the year. Okay, uh, work with a a good seed company. We've got one here in Central Indiana. It's called Byron Seeds, really top notch company. Very helpful if you call them, tell them what you're trying to accomplish, tell them what region you're in. I'm not saying you have to use them. I don't know again where you're at, but if you find a good local seed company that's got good reviews. Uh, call and talk to, to somebody over there and ask them, say, hey, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. You know, what would you suggest? And if you, you know, gut check, you know, if you feel like they're steering you in the right direction, take the advice and run with it. Um, you know, so those are kind of my thoughts. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that you need, you know, an alternative plan. Uh, you did say your soil test showed that you might need the lime. I don't know that I think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I, I think giving it a little shot in the arm, you know, could uh, really kind of, you know, a- amplify, uh, everything else you're, you're doing there. And again, I, I would really encourage you to check out organic grow, even for your seed. They, they've got a, a product that just, it, it helps the seeds germinate better. It, it increases your germination rate. Um, and one thing you didn't ask about here, uh, and I'm going to mention is you, you might even check with the NRCS to see if you might qualify for a grant to get some of this work done. Now they're going to have a very, um, you know, I don't want to say stringent, but intentional, you know, program that you'll have to follow. But in my experience, that doesn't mean you have to use herbicides. What it means is that you have to get a good establishment of grasses and legumes out there for your grazing ruminants. However you want to go about accomplishing that typically is up to you. Again, regions do vary. Um, but you might look into that. If, if you want to read more on the NRCS, there's a, a three-part blog article on my site at DarbySimpson.com that you can check out. Uh, and there's also a great podcast that Jack did with a good friend of mine, Rob Kaiser, in Ohio. Uh, and, and Rob did a greenhouse with a great podcast on his interactions with the NRCS if you've got more questions about working with the government on funds. They're actually a pretty good organization to work with, in my opinion. So... You know, those those are my big thoughts, Megan. Hopefully, if you find this helpful, if you have more questions, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, for everyone else, again, hey, check me out at DarbySimpson.com. You can uh, check out some of the blog articles out there. Also, uh, uh, consider checking out the podcast that I do with Diego Footer each week. You can find it at permaculturevoices.com or in the iTunes store. It is called Grass-Fed Life 
where we talk about this very type of thing for an hour every week. Uh, we're pushing 60 episodes, and there's lots more coming. There's a lot of exciting stuff in the pipeline with Grass-Fed Life. So head on out, check out that podcast, and give it a listen and let us know what you think. As always, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. And everyone, have a wonderful weekend and take care. See ya. I personally lean very heavily toward disking and reseeding myself in this situation. Now, I'm not a pro like Darby is or anything, and it's easy to say when it's not your money that has to do the work. But the reason I, I say that is because it would allow you to custom tailor the the seed that goes down into it and have a the ability to provide dominance to the things that you want, and that would make grazing it into better condition easier, in my opinion, I also believe this could be phased in in, let's say, four or five acre blocks or something like that. The, the issue to me now is we're pretty late in the year for that, so it may have to wait until fall or something to do a fall seeding or even into a spring seeding next year. But that's something you got to figure out for yourself, and I would go with Darthy, Darby's advice one way or the other. I think it's, it's spot on. Next question I have is for Patrick Roman of MT Knives on the proper way to sharpen a knife using a whetstone. Hi guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives with today's TSP Expert Council Question of the Week. The question comes from Greg. His question is, what is the proper technique for sharpening a knife, specifically a kitchen knife, using a whetstone? Follow up. As a trained chef, I've been taught several ways to properly sharpen a kitchen knife, specifically on a whetstone. Some chefs prefer to push the blade across the stone, some draw it across the stone, and others taught us to use small circles with the blade across the stone to sharpen. I've tried all of these techniques with mixed success. Using all of them, I've tried to hold the blade at the proper angle, approximately 29 degrees, and to keep the blade properly lubed. Can you go over what you find the best method for getting a really good edge on a knife that will not wear down as fast as another method? Thanks. All the best. Greg. There's three basic stages in sharpening your knife. First, establishing the burr. Second, refining the burr. And finally, removing the burr or stropping. In the first stage, it really doesn't matter how you go about hogging out the steel to get the burr established. I prefer the back and forth strokes, utilizing as much of the stone as possible. I find that this is the fastest and most efficient way. Once you've established the burr, then you need to refine it. I achieve this by making the edge trailing passes from here on out, much like you would a strop. Most people sharpen exactly opposite of this, using a cutting motion like shaving a stamp off a sheet of paper. I find the edge trailing passes are more forgiving and help achieve a sharper edge. I go more in depth on this in my ebook and my video Beyond Razor Sharp. The last step is to remove the burr. I achieve this by lightly drawing the knife through some soft wood and stropping it on newspaper or leather. I almost never use leather, but others swear by it. Overall, I'm more concerned with the results more than the technique. It sounds like you've had plenty of instruction and it's hard to know the source of the problem just from the information I have. I'd really like to watch you sharpen and use your knives to get to the bottom of the problem. 
I'm always open to putting together a class in your area if you have a venue and a group large enough. We had a great time in Colorado last year with a great group of guys. One last thing, it sounds like you're more concerned with how long the edge is holding up. And the 29-degree edge, or roughly 14 degrees per side, should be giving you good results. I hold much lower than that for my kitchen knives, sometimes as low as 15 degrees or 7.5 on either side. There's three basic things that will determine how long your knife will hold its edge. The steel, the angle, and the care. The steel and heat treat will determine the best edge for the knife. The better the steel, the lower the angle it can take. Angle, the lower the angle, the better the knife will cut. However, the lower the angle, the shorter the life of the edge. You'll have to sharpen it more often. It is a sliding scale. Finding the right give and take is a personal choice. The sharper you want your knives, the more often you're going to have to sharpen them. Care. The user is the one thing I don't hear many people talk about. I have customers that put a custom edge on just for them. Typically, they're customers who are abusing or more demanding of their knives than they should. It's easier to change the knife than the person. I personally like the knife beyond razor sharp and use it for how it is designed. I prefer the race car over the tank. Grace over power. A sharp knife is enjoyable, gracefully parting almost anything you apply the edge to at the moment it makes contact. Thank you for your question, Greg. Hopefully you found it helpful. I'd like to thank everyone else for their questions as well. Please keep them coming. This has been Patrick with mtknives.net. Have a great day. Next, I have a question for Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus on packs, ruck packs, and uh, some other stuff. Uh, Tim, take it away. Hey, everybody out there in TSP podcast land. Tim Glantz here from Old Grouch and Military Surplus with an expert panel answer for uh, Jacob, who uh, kind of two questions. He said, any advice on using the Molly 2 rucksack, assault pack, and FLC, which stands for fighting load carrier setup, especially on how to optimize it and make it the most comfortable? My county search and rescue team have a supply of surplus sets we're given when we volunteered to base our search gear on. And uh, number two, any guidance on getting surplus as a government agency and ways to find if particular equipment is available for our team? Well, uh, first, uh, Jacob, I'm going to go over for everybody a little bit about <coughs> excuse me, what each of these systems is. The Molly 2 rucksack is the current issue rucksack, and there are several generations of it. The first version of the Molly 2 was in woodland camo, and it had a plastic frame, uh, nice padded shoulder straps, a really nice waist belt, and had two components to the pack. There was the main pack, and then it had a second pouch that went beneath it that held your sleeping system or your sleep gear if you carried it. And then there's two pouches that go on the side called sustainment pouches that can be optionally run. It was a good system. It was a lot better than the Molly 1, which was very short-lived. Uh, uh, the biggest problem with it and that version, and they also made that version in Desert Camo, was that it's kind of cumbersome to have your sleeping gear in a second pouch that attaches on the bottom. Uh, you had to cinch it up, and it never quite stayed tight. And so they came out with the next version when they came out with it in ACU and later in Multicam, where it was all one big pouch, and instead you could either use it as one big compartment or there was a divider in the middle that you could set up where you had a top compartment and a bottom compartment and the bottom compartment had a zipper access so you can go in and pull your sleeping bag out. 
much better setup in my opinion uh, if you're going to carry the sleeping gear now if you never plan to carry as much as a sleeping gear sometimes the molly one can be a better uh, setup uh, not molly one but early molly two that has the two piece uh, the biggest problem on the early molly twos other than uh, the two piece was actually the early generation frames were uh, prone to cracking we're on generation four of the frames now and if you see one that's either in green or in uh, coyote brown color it's a gen 4 frame much better uh and if you get a good deal on one of the earlier ones that's got a black frame just uh buy an a violator frame they're cheap i think we've got the frames on our website for uh, about eight dollars right now for a brand new frame so if you've got earlier ones with black frames it's well worth the upgrade it's a much better frame uh then the assault pack also called the three-day pack was a smaller pack that can be worn separately or it's got fast x buckles where it can hook to the uh, outside of the Molly 2 pack, the main rucksack, and you can carry them both at once. Uh, my biggest words of advice on the packs. Number one, don't carry both. There, there's no real reason. The only time anybody ever hooks that assault pack to the main pack is when you're headed to get onto the aircraft to deploy and you've got to pack everything you need for a year in two duffel bags and a rucksack. Nobody ever carries it like that operationally. It's too much stuff. It's way, when you start hanging that assault pack off the back, it's way off balance. And uh, you don't want to do that. Number two, if you carry the big molly ruck, and this applies for your search and rescue stuff, for people, you know, planning a get-home bag or a bug-out bag or anything else, have the self-discipline not to fill up all that space. Just because you got a lot of space doesn't mean you need to fill it. Because if you're not out there all the time with that ruck on your back, you're going to learn really fast why you don't want to fill that. Less is more. Uh, the Molly 2 ruck, if you're running the big one, uh, there are slots in the frame and there's a lot of adjustment, uh, way better than the old Alice packs, where you can move the straps up and down on the frame how high they rest and you can move that waist belt up and down. So you can adjust it for a whole lot of different torso sizes, which is a lot better off then the one size kind of fits most Alice Pack system where if you were a really small person or a really big person, uh, you, you were just going to be uncomfortable and there was no way around it. The other one uh, I would advise is uh, look at all the attachment points from Molly on the outside and put smaller Molly pouches on the outside of either of the packs for your most used stuff, your water bottle or canteen, uh, your first aid gear you might need in a hurry, and the other stuff you're going to grab in a hurry. Uh, pack it like that and, uh, you know, take the time to adjust where those straps are and or the, where that waist belt is to really fit your torso. And before you use it operationally in the search and rescue thing or for anybody packing one of these for a get home bag, before you have to actually use it where it matters, put it on your back and walk several miles. Learn what fits, what rubs, what you need to adjust because until you've actually used it, you're not sure if that fit that fits good for the five minutes you've used it still fits good three hours and ten miles later. So try it, try it, try it, adjust it and tweak it until you get it where you want it. Now as far as the fighting load carrier, for people that don't know what the fighting load carrier is, fighting load carrier is a setup that has your basic molly vest. There's a padded belt in the bottom and it's full of molly webbing. The waist adjusts, uh, it's hard to see and a lot of people look at it and can't see it adjust, but if you look at the back of the belt, you'll see two 
thick tabs that run through the molly on the belt. You pull those loose and then loosen the buckle on the front and you can adjust it. And we've experimented. We can take it anywhere from about 30 inches out to about 54 inches. And 54 sounds big, but if you're wearing bulky winter clothing or, or body armor or even both, then you really need that extra size to get it out there. Uh, my advice there, once again, put the stuff on, make it comfortable, and wear it around. Try it. See how it works. Keep a notepad and see, hey, I've got this with me. I never used it the whole time. Or, hey, it was really awkward reaching back here where I put this here and I reach for it a lot. Maybe I need to move it up front. Because the beauty of this Molly FLC system compared to like the old Alice gear is that you've got a lot more modularity and you can move stuff all over the place. Make sure you kind of keep it balanced. You don't want all your weight just hanging off the front because it's going to be uncomfortable. And if you get one of the later ones uh, that has both the zipper for the closure and uh, buckle straps, what you want to do is adjust the sizing on it so that when you're wearing, say, your summer clothing, uh, you close it with the zipper and it fits just right. Then, when you're wearing your winter clothing or even body armor or anything else, you don't have to readjust it, but rather you use the buckle uh, straps because they're longer, which lets you put it on over uh, more layers of clothing without having to go and readjust everything, which makes it a lot easier to fit. But once again, just like the packs, set it up with what you think will work and get out there and actually move around in it do stuff in it, do train in it, and see how it fits, what rubs where, what's uncomfortable, and then keep tweaking it. And if you do that, you'll have a really good uh, product at the end of the day that's, that's adjusted exactly for what you need. The only other thing I would suggest, uh, this is something, you know, some military units get really big on SOP. Hey, I want every pouch in the same place. Uh, I always fought that when I was in. There's only one thing that everybody... I think whether it be your search and rescue team or a military unit or any other group, if you're all running a different loadout, the one thing that needs to be in the same place in everybody's uh, loadout is your personal first aid gear. Because if you're injured and somebody has to run up and use your first aid gear on you, they need to know, okay, it's right here, right hip, where I can grab it or wherever you choose to put it. Uh, so if you're talking to your group about setting this up, you might think about standardizing where is my personal first aid loadout that is the stuff meant to be used on you when you get hurt going to be at, and is everybody going to standardize that? Uh, if anybody hasn't seen this kind of stuff, I do have the Molly rucksacks and uh, the FLC vests on my website, so you can take a look at them. And we've actually got the Marine Corps issue one Coyote Browns at the time I'm making this recording. Uh, actually on sale more than half off because I bought a whole bunch of them, so you might want to check that out too. So uh hope that helps. And if you got any more questions, feel free to email me and get my email through uh through my website, oldgrouch.com. Uh and everybody hope you have a great day. And as always, Jack, thanks for the great podcast. Next up I have a question for old Doc Bones on blackstrap molasses and its nutritional value and using it in uh some stuff he had talked about using last year. I'd also like to just tell you guys, uh, Doc Bones and his wife, Nurse Amy, are just awesome people. Uh, they're in town for an expo, and uh, last night I had the good pleasure. Uh, Dorothy and I went and met uh, Amy and Bones uh, in downtown Fort Worth and uh, had a, a great meal um, at uh, Cantina Laredo, and then we, we hopped on over to a place. I really recommend, if you're ever in downtown, Dal uh, downtown Fort Worth, you go check out. It's called the Bird Cafe. 
They have a lot of really unique uh, locally cooked foods and all, but we had already eaten, so we went and sat on our patio right by the big fountain square there. And I introduced Old Doc Bones to a drink called the Old Fashioned. And uh, Old Fashions are a great drink, but the ones they make at the Bird Cafe, that is master-level bartender alchemy. Uh, a lot of the ingredients they use in it, they actually make themselves right there. And I just thought I'd throw a little pitch out for them and, and say I enjoyed seeing my friends last night. Doc Bones, talk to us instead about Old Fashions, Blackstrap, Molasses, man. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, now with close to a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Evelyn, who writes, Can blackstrap molasses be used as part of the sugar source in the electrolyte solution recipe you gave last summer? According to the nutrition label, cane sugar has 12 grams of sugar per tablespoon, blackstrap molasses has 13. But it also has several other minerals. Could those extra minerals be beneficial, or might they interfere with restoring electrolytes? I have a tendency towards dehydration resulting in low sodium, plus my protein is usually low at the same time. This leads me to wonder if I'm also low in other minerals, and vitamins too, but I'm generally concerned with minerals. I have an aversion to modern food practices and find it hard to eat anything if organic or trustworthy foods are not available when I need them. Evelyn, blackstrap molasses is a byproduct of sugarcane's refining process. Sugarcane is mashed to create juice and boiled once to create cane syrup, a second boiling creates molasses, and after the syrup has been boiled a third time, a dark viscous liquid emerges known to Americans as blackstrap molasses. It has the lowest sugar content of any sugarcane product and is absorbed more slowly, so it might be a reasonable alternative for those especially with diabetes. As you mentioned, blackstrap molasses has a number of additional minerals and other substances. It's rich in iron, which our bodies need to carry oxygen to our blood cells. People who are anemic might benefit from consuming one to two tablespoons of blackstrap molasses per day. It's high in calcium and magnesium, as well as manganese, which helps produce energy from proteins and carbohydrates. Uh, potassium, an important electrolyte, which plays a role in nerve transmission, muscle contraction, vitamin B6, which helps the brain and skin, and even selenium which is an important antioxidant. Is blackstrap molasses an acceptable alternative to refined sugar in oral rehydration solutions? Now, I would say yes, with a couple of caveats. Now, some claim that blackstrap molasses is a natural stool softener and laxative that can improve the regularity and quality of your bowel movements. If you're dehydrated, though, especially from diarrheal disease, this may be problematic. Now, the fact that there is potassium in blackstrap molasses may change the amount of potassium you would use in my homemade oral rehydration recipe. I recommend, I think, a quarter to a half a tablespoon of potassium chloride, also known as salt substitute, in the supermarket. But I'd go to the lesser amount if you choose to use blackstrap molasses as your sugar source. Also, some find the product slightly bitter, so you might have to flavor it somewhat, especially if it was given to children. Evelyn, you have a tendency to towards dehydration, so I encourage you to spend more time getting healthy fluids into your system. Keep that in your mind. Also, remember that I write about survival issues, and sometimes you don't have much choice after a disaster as to what food is available. It's important to choose organic food sources, but not to the point that you allow yourself to get malnourished. 
This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a huge favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at DRBonesNurseAmy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Okay, next up, I uh, I have some a little bit of humor and some interesting facts and a hell of a rant from Stephen Harris, and I have an intro by Stephen first. To set the stage for this, several weeks ago I had a question on the reliability of a particular motor, and I pointed out that often when you hear that a certain motor has problems or doesn't do well or it's plagued with gremlins, that often if you trace it back to the forums that are the source of that when you dig into it, especially with diesels, you'll find that a lot of Billy Bobs decide to go out and get one of them special air chips and plug it into their motor, make it go faster and things like that. And generally a lot of these problems come from people screwing around with the electronics in these motors and trying to make them do more than the skilled engineers that you know set them up and fine-tune them in the first place. And that... You know, when you start dealing with vehicles that have a lot of computer code in them and you start changing code without knowing all the code, it creates problems. So I said, hey, I'm going to kick this over to Steve and let him follow up on it because the very next day was the expert counsel show. And his opening sounded like he was talking to the person that uh, asked a question who didn't chip anything. So with that in mind, here's Steve's intro. A little production value by me in the middle and then a Stephen Harris rant that will... Uh, that will entertain and educate you. Hi, this is Steve Harris, and I'm here to tell you something that Jack Spearco told me after I recorded an audio file. He wrote me back and said that I needed to move to a state where medical marijuana was legal. Um... To tell you how this came about, Jack was talking about how reliable diesel trucks are and that you need to treat them right and not chip them and not mess with them and they are you know, one of the most reliable engines in the entire world. And he goes, and I'm going to kick this over to my buddy Steve Harris and I can't wait to hear what he has to say about chipping the vehicle and what other people do to vehicles and for me it was kind of like you know and you know monty burns from the simpson where he goes release the hounds well that's what i kind of felt jack did was he uh released the hounds so i did an off-the-cuff uh thing audio file and i just unloaded of all, you know, I gave you inside the auto, automobile industry stuff you would never ever hear in your life anywhere else, you know, and how we do things and how things are calibrated and, you know, how we, you know, do airflow and a bunch of other stuff and that people just go and mess up. And I got frustrated and Jack said I sounded like an a-hole and that I was demeaning the person who asked the question. I don't even know who the person was and I wasn't. I'm not. And I'm not right now. I'm just going to settle down a little bit, count to ten. But I wanted to do a little prelude here and let you know it's it's a good file that I made. But you know I'm not intentionally going after anyone. None of you guys are dumb. None of the things people do they they, they do to vehicles just because they 
don't know any better or their friend told them. And so it's just a little insight into the world that I once lived in. And I'm kind of passionate and uh, verbose in my discussion of the subject. Some of you would say, I went off on it. But, you know, I heard the bugle call and released the hounds and away I went. Sorry, guys. So without further ado, if Jack allows it, here is the audio file, the answer to uh, what people do to vehicles. Sir, the actors are here to audition for the part of you. Excellent. Excellent. Next. Excellent. Next. Exactly. <laughs> Next. Excellent. Es muy bueno. Oh, it's hopeless. You lied to me. Release the hounds. Hey, numbnuts. Stop effing with the damn motor. Leave it alone. Get this through your head. It is not a Tonka toy for you to play with. You're not going to get anything beneficial out of doing it. You don't understand what it took to make it. When you have multiple copies of internal combustion engine fundamentals on your bookshelf and they have been your late night reading for 30 years, then you can maybe start telling me something about internal combustion engine fundamentals. I understand internal combustion fundamentals very, very well in both diesel as well as gasoline motors all the way up to things called stratified charge using hydrogen in an internal combustion engine from carbureted to fuel injected to direct injection. This is something I have done <clears throat> since about 1989. You don't understand what we do for a calibration of an engine. First, an engine, well, first of all, in the 1990s, this is 1990s dollars. It took $300 million to develop that new engine from beginning to end to go into a vehicle. $300 million. You know, that'd be $500 or $600 million today. For a new vehicle with a new engine and a new drive line, like to say when the Grand Cherokee came out, I think in um, 1994, I know the Dodge Ram, the new Dodge Ram came out in 1994, codenamed T300, also called the BR. Uh, it was a five million, sorry, five billion dollar vehicle. That's what it took to develop the vehicle over four to five years. Five billion dollars. Now, my office was on the west hallway of Jeep and Truck Engineering at 14250 Plymouth Road, Detroit, Michigan, 48227, mail stop 514-17-22. And right down the hallway from me were some of my buddies, and they were in the Cal Lab, the calibration lab. So not only would they take an engine and put it on a dynamometer and run it through its paces and do the initial calibrations on the engine, but they would take vehicles. So let's say they would take a new Grand Cherokee, 
uh, and they would put the engine into the, the new Grand Cherokee that was going to be released in two years from now. So they got a two-year head start on it, okay? So it was like a 1996 Grand Cherokee with a 1998 proposed engine in it, like the 4.7-liter uh, engine, which, <laughs> boy, can I tell you stories about gremlins of that engine. They would then drive this vehicle every single day, okay? And there was like... 14 or 15 people in the Cal Lab. They each had a different vehicle. They drove it not only during work time, they drove it off work time. They drove it home. They drove it to work. They started it in the morning in the cold, in the heat, in the rain, in the humidity. You know, they drove it hard down the highway. They drove it like grandma would drive it. And all this time, they had this big piece of instrumentation, about 18 inches long, four inches high, on top of the dash. It looked like something out of, you know, Star Trek. And it had all of the digital, all this digital display on it and it was giving them all of the calibration numbers that they needed to know. And they could change through umpteen pages of these that they were concerned with. And they were all in what you know, if you're a computer person, you know what hexadecimal is. It's base 16, not base 10. We count in base 10. In computers, we use hexadecimal, uh, base 16 or, you know, base, uh, two, zero and one. So they entered all the parameters on the fly with a keypad in hexadecimal and they change it from like, uh, FD to FE and they drove this corporate vehicle so much that many of them did not even own a personal vehicle. They did not own a personal vehicle because it was their job to drive a corporate vehicle through all sorts of duty cycles. You know, they drove it through, like I said, the winter, through the summer, through the, on special trips, on the proving grounds, you name it. They did it. It took tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand man hours for them to come up with the precise calibrations needed for the vehicle. This was not only for vehicle performance, such as, you know, am I placing too much torque on the drive shaft or the transmission? There have been engines out there that have been derated because they would literally blow the transmission into little metal fragments if you went to wide open throttle, pulling a trailer up a hill, you would fry your transmission, physically grind it into mush. So the engine was dialed back for situations like that. So if you go and chip your engine and you change these um, codes, the calibration codes, which is most of the time what you're doing when you're chipping an engine and not changing the programming, you're changing what's called the cal tables, It this is what it's doing. You're saying you can have more power, more fuel, more air at this time, and the transmission goes, huh? dies okay and then you blame the engine and then you probably blame it on the ethanol in the gasoline that you put into the vehicle and say the ethanol and the gasoline killed my car it's a witch it's a witch jack insert 
<laughs> you already did that once. Um, it is just endless. We in my group was aerodynamics and thermal management. Uh, we were part of vehicle development and part of the scientific labs. And uh, we dealt with vehicles a lot from when they were in the clay, like, you know, when we were sculpting them from clay. We didn't do the sculpting, but we would go look at the clay model, knowing that there's a 4.7 liter or a 5.8 liter engine going into it, and just shake our heads and go, no, we need more openings in the front because we need more air. It's going to get hot underneath that engine. That engine needs to breathe both in and both out. And, you know, they, the style, the styling people wanted this nice little, you know, hole in the front of this cute little grill. It's like, no, it, it ain't going to work. It's like trying to run a marathon and, you know, breathing through a straw. No, thank you. So we would work with uh, the vehicles all the way from very pre-production, what we call the F1 buck level, uh, to before that in clay and all the way sometimes I had to solve problems in uh, warranty issues that were in vehicles that were out for two years. So most of our work was done in the pre-production vehicles and uh, even that is a term I shouldn't be using because we were well before the PPV uh, level. We were in the F1 buck level and uh, we we're doing our stuff two and three years before the vehicle was released, up to one year before it was released, when the releasing engineers take over most of the stuff, uh, and they make changes and stuff based upon what we developed. So one of the things we would do is, uh, in the wind tunnels, and even, you know, even driving down the road and pouring rain, my boss, the best-looking Cuban you ever saw was his tagline. The name was Clemente Ardenando Besa. And uh, we would be driving down the highway, and it would be thunderstorming, and we would be watching the airflow around the vehicles around us on the road, pushing the raindrops away and watching the flow patterns of the wind. Because in a wind tunnel, you can't not perfectly reproduce a real-world environment. So here we are driving down the highway in a real-world environment, and we're looking and, you know, noticing different things on different vehicles about the rain pattern. And, you know, have you ever seen the back end of a vehicle with, like, a bunch of dust on it? Well, <laughs> there's lots of turbulence behind the vehicle. That's an airflow problem, guys. That's something we tried to fix. So anyways, we spend all this time in the aerodynamics of the vehicle, and one of the things that we did was we optimized for the air to flow up and over the hood and then impact, impinge directly on the base of the windshield. Now, at the base of the windshield, between the windshield and the hood, is something called the plenum. This is the air intake for the HVAC system of the vehicle. And we wanted that pressure at the plenum to be perfect and to be maximum. This way you could have cool AC flowing in your vehicle that is cooled natural outside air and the fan would have to have a minimal amount of work because there's something called fan noise. Both fan noise under the hood of the fan running the cool, the radiator, and the vehicle condenser, and there's fan noise from the HVAC blower inside of the vehicle. So obviously the more pressure 
we have on the plenum from you driving down the road, the lower the internal HVAC fan can be, thus the lower the noise level in the cabin. Because, you know, we had, you know, a saying that went along lines of like, once you get rid of the engine noise, you can hear the road noise. Once you get rid of the tire noise, you can hear the driveline noise. Once you get rid of that, you can hear the cat. Yeah, I mean, okay, there were all sorts of noises that we chased after. And uh, that was a, that's a whole separate field that we didn't do much in. We did wind noise because of the aerodynamics around the mirrors, uh, off of the antenna, up and across the A-pillars, how the air flowed. We took care of that type of noise. But basically the NVH people, the noise, vibration, and harshness people, did the majority of the work on the what noises were in the vehicle. So, I mean, this goes everything from having mastic underneath the carpeting to, you know, no antenna outside, one built into the, the, the windshield glass to, I mean, we, we had vehicles that ran sewing machine quiet and put them into the anti-ochaic uh, chamber where there's, you know, the big things of foam coming out on all sides and there's no noise. And they would, you know, then work on the other noises in the vehicle because the engine noise was so low. So anyways, we're doing this work in the wind tunnel. Millions of dollars worth of work to get this pressure perfectly at the plenum before uh, the windshield. So you got, you know, a lower, a better airflow and a lower noise environment inside the vehicle. Now, what's the first thing Bubba does when he goes to the store and buys him a Dodge Ram pickup truck? He gets his Dodge Ram pickup truck and says, I want one of them large Mopar bug deflectors put onto the front of my truck. You know, keep the mosquitoes off the windshield. You took a $15 piece of plastic and you just screwed up a couple billion dollars worth of engineering. Because all you get when you put a bug deflector on a vehicle is you get turbulence. So you just increased your noise, decreased your plenum pressure, increased the HVAC blower need. So you're going, what? What? You know, all you got is this white noise of the blower going next to you, and you're trying to talk to someone on next to you or on the phone, and you're just in a field of white noise. So you chip it in your vehicle and you putting on the bug deflector or the rain guards for the window and everything else. I mean, all you're doing is basically effing up a couple of million dollars worth of engineering that was even tens of millions of dollars worth of engineering that was done on a billion dollar vehicle over a period of three to five years. So as uh, I have said, and Jack will tell you, stop effing with the damn vehicle. It's not a 1970s muscle car, and you're not drilling out the carburetor to increase the fuel-to-air ratio. Um, when the Cal people were doing their calibrations, it wasn't just for the engine performance and, and, and the, like I said, the driveline can, the transmission take it. It was also for emissions. They had onboard emissions all through the vehicle. And, if, for example, 
a good deal of the emissions right now. Diesels run with surplus air. That's why we went from like a 5.9 liter Dodge Cummins to a 6.7 liter Dodge Cummins, and it's the same horsepower. It's because you can have more air in the cylinder. A diesel is a stratified charge, not a homogeneous charge engine. And when you have more air in the cylinder, you can get a better combustion, thus lower emissions. You can also do it at a higher temperature. Now, what this does is it produces oxides and nitrogen when you do this to get the cleaner burning vehicle. They didn't want the 2.5 micrometer particulates, the cloud of black coming out of the diesel. That's what this was designed to reduce. But when they did that, they increased the oxides and nitrogen. It's a byproduct of having too much air and too much of a high temperature in the cylinder, which is what makes the vehicle more efficient. So it meets its fuel economy, its cafe, but you're producing a, a, a smog-reducing byproduct. So they come up with this stupid rule that you have to have diesel exhaust fluid, DEF fluid, put into a tank, which is a combination of urea and water, which is an ammonia-based solution, which is NH3, and this is injected into the catalytic converter, uh, not the pre-cat, was selective reduction catalyst, or selective catalytic reduction. It's SCR or SRC, I forget which one it is. And the ammonia, uh, the water urea solution is injected in there to precipitate out the oxides of nitrogen and turning them into water, hydrogen, and, um, let's see, well, it basically turns them into not something that's not harmful. So, I mean, there's a complete, you know, thing run amok from, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I've gone on for 17 minutes. I could go on for hours on vehicle development. Hopefully this gives you a little window into the subject. Jack is so 100% right. Stop effing with the vehicle. Put gasoline in it, make sure there's radiator fluid in it, uh, and change the oil, and use synthetic oil. Use Mobile One if you can. I was I was in a conference room with a bunch of the fuels and lube people. These are guys that did fuels and lubrication for 35 years, 30 years, and 20 years. There were three of them in front of me because we were working with problems that had to do with the engine coolant and the electrochemistry of the engine coolant, and it degrading the aluminum parts like the heater core and the radiator in the engine. So the fuels and lube guys were called in. We were participating in a roundtable to find out what's going on. And so I was sitting there early with the guys, and I just go, hey, guys, you know, I got a question for you. They go, shoot. I go, what is the number one oil I should be putting into my vehicle? And they all three of them said it in, you know, in the same time, mobile one. This is from a guy that spent 35 years of his life in fuels and lube. Nothing but fuels and lubrication. So that is all my motors, all my parents, they all run Mobile One from the very beginning to the very end. Change it every 10,000 miles. Even though it can go further, I change it every 10,000 miles. And on your diesels, don't forget to change your fuel filter Every time you change your oil, or at least every other time you change your oil. 
The heart of a diesel engine is the fuel injection system, okay? And it's not a trivial fuel injection system. Today, it's 20 to 25,000 PSI of direct injection into the cylinder for the diesel. And this is, uh, you know, about as expensive and complex as the engine. So your water separator filter and your pre-filter, which are easy to get to, go a long ways to making sure that engine uh, injector does not F up, you know, because you put in contaminated fuel, which you had no idea that you did. You know, there's lots of different things that happen that are outside of your control, but what you can control is those fuel filters. So on your diesels, be generous in the changing of your fuel filters. It's a little container under the hood. You unscrew it with a wrench, pop out the old filter, put in a new one. Napa will have it. Uh, Amazon.com probably has it. Change your fuel filter on your diesels and listen to what I'm saying. And by all means, listen to Jack Spierko. He is correct in everything he has said about the gremlins in the power stroke and how this gets developed with other vehicles. Everyone hates those damn engineers. Oh, my God, the engineers don't know what we're doing. My God. <laughs> If you only knew, only knew what we did so we could do our job. I mean, there's times when you get a problem, and it's the first time this problem has shown up in the entire world, and you have to solve it. <laughs> okay, guys, that's enough. I think you probably enjoyed me doing this, but... Thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. Talk to you later. I, I, I still think that Steve needs to move to a place that's legalized medical marijuana. I think that his his life would be vastly improved. <laughs> He's an awesome guy, though, and he sure as hell is a whirlwind of knowledge and uh, what have you. But... Um, Next up, let's uh, let's hear from Keith Snow on cooking heirloom pork. Keith, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer John's question about using lots of pork shoulder. Now, John was fortunate enough to um, have a local hog raised for him out in a nice forest with grass. Really, um, the way you really try to get one is is um, that's out on pasture like this and has access to the forest. So a real quality heirloom. It's a Berkshire hog. And uh, he's got a lot of meat. So I wanted to give him a recipe for it because he's wondering about what to do with all the shoulder meat um, instead of barbecue. Now, a lot of people just use it for smoking, and that's a great way to do it. But, John, I wanted to share um, a really cool recipe. I call it heirloom Berkshire pork with apples, cider, and sage. I will be giving Jack a uh, link um, to this, uh, I've got a nice video for it in the recipe posted over at the tastyeducation.com website under the harvest eating course. Um, there's a, a preview of this, so nobody has to pay to watch it. You just go over there and find it. Anyway, I recently, when I developed this recipe, I found a local, uh, Iraq veteran, young guy, um, and he just started a small farm, and he does just pastured animals. And um, he's got these Berkshire hogs. He's doing not too many chickens, but he's doing some ducks and turkeys. And then he also has a very small uh, herd of 
beef and he's not using Angus, he's using Charlet, which is a really interesting breed, mainly from France. I've eaten Charlet before. It's tasty meat. But let me give you this recipe here for the um, pork shoulder or butt, as they call it. Now, this is a great recipe, and basically what it is, it's it's um, a big shoulder cut up into chunks, a little bit of um, lard, some Granny Smith or other sort of tart apples, onion, hard cider. Now, I just bought a bottle of, I think it was Samuel Smith's hard cider. You can um, find a local hard cider probably wherever you are. Then it has some sage leaves, a little bit of heavy cream, salt and pepper, and a touch of flour. You could substitute cornstarch if you were worried about um, the flour. But very simple. Now, what you want to do is get a good heavy bottom pan or pot, rather. I'm using like a enameled Dutch oven with a tight-fitting lid. And this is going to serve to cook the entire meal. Now, um, one thing that's nice when you're working with pork like this is you can oftentimes get some lard from the same source, and that's what I was able to do. So some really rich uh, pork lard that you get from a small farmer is going to have, uh, in my opinion, much better taste than the sort of industrialized stuff you get in the supermarket. So what I do is cut the uh, pork up into chunks. Now, I'm not looking for little half-inch by half-inch pieces. I want larger chunks, and I definitely don't want this to be uh, too, you know, restaurant looking. I want it to be rustic. Uh, it's going to cook a long time, so you can have some bigger chunks and some smaller chunks, and they'll certainly um, be, you know, dead tender in the end. Super, super tender. So just chunk the stuff up any way you want. Toss it with a little bit of flour, uh, some salt and pepper, and then what I do is put about a half a cup of that lard in the bottom of the Dutch oven and start to um, get that melted. And once the, the pot is hot, I toss in the pork, um, spread it along the bottom, and kind of leave it there. Now, the idea here is to develop fond, F-O-N-D, fond. What this is is that sort of burnt-down-looking stuff at the bottom of the pan. And it's not really burnt. It's just developed flavor. They call it the Maillard reaction. So it's that really dark brown kind of stuck-on stuff. That is gold in cooking. So with the flour, that's definitely going to help create some good uh, fond. But you want to leave these things cooking. You don't want to overcrowd them. You don't want them piled too high. On, if you have to do it in batches, that's cool. Um, but the idea is to get some good dark color on here. After four or five minutes, uh, I like to take a flat spatula and uh, a metal one and just kind of scrape it and turn it over and then cook a little bit on the other side. Then I spoon it out of there and do that in batches until all your pork has some good uh, caramelization on the outside and the bottom of your pot has quite a bit of fun. Now in goes a little more lard and then I toss in the onion. That's just um, kind of minced up and cook the onion with the apples. You're going to have diced Granny Smith apples. Put them both in there at the same time and what will happen is you'll see some liquid coming out of the apples and just toss and turn and stir and you know what to do, kind of get that stuff going in there. Then you're going to deglaze it with the entire bottle of cider. So it should be hot enough to when you pour the cider in there, a lot of bubbling and foaming happens because it should instantly boil. Once it does that, once you see it, you know, boiling, take that same spatula or a wooden spoon, whatever, and scrape up 
all of that stuff off the bottom. Just kind of scrape along the bottom of the pan, and you want to release the fond into the liquid. That's going to make a huge difference than leaving it stuck on the bottom of the pan. So once you've kind of scraped it, turn this down, uh, turn this off, and then um, what I do is toss all of the uh, pork back in there, mix the whole thing together, season it with salt and pepper. Um, I'll put half of the sage in there now, and then you can do two things. You can cover it, and you need to have a tight-fitting lid. If you've got a lame lid that's going to allow evaporation, then what you need to do is cover it first with um, heavy-duty foil and then sort of press your lid on top of the foil and uh, on your pan so you don't have those juices evaporating because you're trying to braise this. Now, this needs to cook at least at least two and a half hours or even longer. Now, I'm a big fan of setting my oven at 220 degrees, something like that, and putting the whole thing in the oven and leaving it for five hours just because I can do other things. It's not going to burn. It's not going to overcook. And in the end, you're looking for something super tender anyway. So that's what I like to do. Or you could put it on a, a very, very low flame on your stove, you know, two and a half hours or so. But I do feel that in the oven, um, the entire pot, including the lid, it's all hot and it has kind of a clay oven effect going on. You get a more interesting texture. Now, after um, this stuff, and there's no hard and fast rule. I mean, it may take two hours, depending upon how big you cut these pieces up into. It may take five. It doesn't matter. But when they're super tender and you just open it up, test them. When they're super tender, you're going to add the cream to it. Mix the cream around, adjust your seasoning with salt and pepper, and you're going to have something um, that's really awesome. Now, I like to uh, garnish this with some minced fresh sage on top. And trust me, the pork will be super tender. It's going to taste a little tangy because you've got the sweetness of the apples and also that tangy cider going on. Um, and then a really rich pork flavor. And then, of course, you're going to have um, the background notes of onions. And the whole thing is sort of smoothed out a little bit with cream. Now, this is not, you know, a cream of pork dish. So you're not putting a ton of cream. Uh, my recipe is calling for a half a cup, which is nothing in something this big. It's just enough to sort of give it a shine and give it sort of a velvety type of mouthfeel. Now, uh, I made this, I think it was, I don't even know, three, four, five months ago. Um, and it was, it was amazing. And the meat was nice and red. And that's going to be the difference. A lot of times, uh, you get pork and it just doesn't have a great color. The stuff that comes, you know, in the cryovac bags from Costco. But when you get something, from a farmer that where this uh, hog's been out eating a varied diet, and that's the key, is not eating you know crap-ass feed from a factory farm. If they're out there, they eat grass, they eat nuts, they might eat you know other stuff that the farmer's giving them, vegetables. I mean, pigs will eat a lot of different things, and when they're out there eating a lot of different things and having plenty of sunlight and exercise and fresh water, then you tend to have meat that tastes a lot better. So I hope this recipe inspires you. Remember, there is a five-minute video showing you exactly how I make it. And this is a great dish because it uses one pot. It's very simple to make. There's not many ingredients here. And it produces sort of amazing results. So I hope that helps you out. Give this recipe a try. Uh, folks, do check out my new site, tastyeducation.com. There is uh, a lot of content over there, the food storage feast course. Uh, my paleo beef course is there. 
lots of information and video to help you uh, improve your cooking. And as always, I appreciate everybody's support. Uh, Jack, have a great weekend, man. Take care. Well, that sounds about fantastic. Of course, another great thing you could do with that is a good old low and slow smoking until uh, it's uh, pullable, and that would be good. But, of course, we Keith and I both covered that last week, so he went a different way this week with what to do with pork shoulder, and that's just a great thing you can do. Um, he has a video that's it's out of the course he's doing right now uh, that he mentioned in that video that he has unlocked so that you can see it and see how his videos work and actually see a full guided how-to of the recipe he just gave. Uh, I have that link for you in the show notes. Time for me to talk about my uh, email question of the week uh, for this show. This comes from Dean. Dean says, Hi, Jack. There's a link to an article that indicates that valedictorians... The ones you would expect to really excel seem to just go along and get along. Well, that's fine for a decent income. It really isn't an indicator of leadership and is more fuel for your argument. Today's schools are just not preparing our kids for tomorrow's challenges. Thanks, Dean. And it's a link to time.com. And I'm going to read. This has actually been done into a video, and I'm going to read. Uh, the article goes with the video because the video is all a bunch of text and a bunch of music playing, so it won't be, do me any good to do that. So I'll read part of this article. I, I posted this article to Facebook last week, and this, this video I mean to Facebook last week, and some people got it. Some people challenged me on it and said, hey, you know, it's perception bias. Well, they still did really good or whatever, and I don't say they didn't do good. But let me, let me read some of this to you and then give you some of my thoughts on it. And this is by Eric Barker, and it says, Wondering what happened to your class valedictorian? Uh, not much research shows. Uh, it says, what becomes of high school valedictorians? It's what every parent wishes for their teenager to be. Mom says, study hard and you'll do well, and very often mom is right, but not always. Karen Arnold, a researcher at Boston College, followed 81 high school valedictorians and salutatorians from graduation onward to see what becomes of those who lead the academic pack. Of the 95% who went on to graduate college, Their average GPA was 3.6, and by 1994, 60% had received a graduate degree. There was little debate that high school success predicted college success. Nearly 90% are now in professional careers, with 40% in the highest-tier jobs. They are reliable, consistent, and well-adjusted, and by all measures, the majority have good lives. But how many of these number one high school performers go on to change the world, run the world, or impress the world? The answer seems to be clear. Zero. Commenting on the success trajectories of her subjects, Karen Arnold said, Even though most are strong occupational achievers, the great majority of former high school valedictorians do not appear headed for the very top of adult achievement arenas. In another interview, Arnold said, valedictorians aren't likely to be the future's visionaries. They're typically very settled into the system instead of shaking it up. Was that just for the, well, was it just for these 81 didn't happen to reach the stratosphere? No. Research shows what makes students likely to be impressive in the classroom is the same thing that makes them less likely to be home run hitters outside the classroom. So why are the number ones in high school so rarely number ones in real life? There are two reasons. First, schools reward students who consistently do what they are told. Academic grades correlate only loosely with intelligence. Standardized tests are better at measuring IQ. Um, grades are, however, an excellent predictor of self-discipline, conscientiousness, and the ability to comply with rules. 
In an interviewer, Arnold said, essentially we are rewarding conformity and willingness to go along with the system. Many of the valedictorians admitted to not being the smartest kid in the class, just the hardest worker. Others said it was more an issue of giving teachers what they wanted than actually knowing the material better. Most of the subjects in the study were classified as careerists. They saw their jobs as getting good grades, not really as learning. The second reason is schools reward being a generalist. There is little recognition of a student's passion or expertise. The real world, however, does the reverse. Arnold, talking about valedictorian, said, They're extremely well-rounded and successful, personally and professionally, but they've never been devoted to a single area in which they put all their passion. That is not usually a recipe for eminence. If you want to do well in school and you're passionate about math, you need to stop working on it to make sure you get an A in history, too. This generalist approach doesn't lead to expertise. Yet eventually we almost all go on to careers in which one skill is highly rewarded and other skills are not that important. Ironically, Arnold found that intellectual students who found enjoying learning, uh, learning struggle in high school. They have passions they want to focus on and are more interested in achieving mastery in. And find the structure of school is stifling. Meanwhile, the valedictorians are increasing intensely pragmatic. They follow the rules and prize A's over skills and deep understanding. School has clear rules. Life often doesn't. When there's no clear path to follow, academic high achievers break down. Sean Anker's research at Harvard shows that college grades aren't any more predictive of subsequent life success than rolling dice. A study of over 700 American millionaires showed their average college GPA was 2.9, or a C. Okay, Following the rules doesn't create success. It just eliminates extremes, both good and bad. While this is usually good and all but eliminates downside risk, it also frequently limits earth-shaking accomplishments. It's like putting a governor on your engine that stops the car from going over 55. You're far less likely to get into a lethal crash, but you won't be setting any land speed records either. Now, I want to tell you about the guy that wrote this article, because this is very, very smart marketing. This is a, an author who's been quite successful in the path. His name is Eric Barker. And if you hear any barking, we have some workmen here on the property now, and the dogs are upset about it, so that's what that is. So it's not production value add-on. But I'm not going to stop and delete at this point or erase, so you might hear the pups bark. Not related. Um, but Eric Barker has a new book out, very new book, called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And this concept that valedictorians don't do earth-shattering things is one of the pieces in many pieces of this book. This book is about all the things that you think are true that generally are not true, right? And I think it's probably a good book. I haven't read it yet. And I have a link in the show notes in case you want to check this book out because this is what this guy did. The, the reality, though, is this study's actually started in the 80s, okay? And the book from it is quite old now as well. And the book, again, was, uh, was written by a, a woman named Karen Arnold. And for some reason, when I hear Karen Arnold, all I can think of is Kevin Arnold, right? But Karen Arnold, and she put that whole study into a book of over 300 pages um, called Lives of Promise, What Becomes of High School Valedictorians. So one of the things people questioned was, like, what is the methodology of this study? Was it, was it accurate? Was it inclusive? You know, was it flawed? Well, if you want to know more, 
There's a 330-page book that you can get. Again, it's called Lives of Promise, What Becomes of High School Valedictorians, from the source of this. And you can also, if you want to, check out um, this guy uh, Barker's book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. All right, And again, links to both in the show notes. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm not even remotely surprised by this. And I don't think what this says is our current educational system in of itself is bad. I think what it demonstrates is what I've been trying to say for so long. One size fits all education does not work and it does not allow people to excel in the areas that they're actually capable of excelling in. It, it, when I look back at, at high school, I think I might have to do a, a show one day called What I Did Learn in High School. Uh, to be fair, to, to some of the things that I still use today that I feel like I learned from high school. I don't know that I wouldn't have learned them elsewhere, but I had some good teachers in certain areas, specifically in history, uh, economics, social study, uh, accounting, and uh, business law and business mathematics. Uh, I went that route with my high school when I realized that algebra sucked uh in my in ninth grade and I kind of switched over to what we had we, we called a business curriculum. I don't even know if they have that anymore. So at least we had some level of being able to tailor things. But when we we get to a point where we're we're judging a school's performance based on standardized testing of the people that are doing the work, right? Or the, the students and, and we're saying that the school will actually be judged on that test that is going to take away from the school the ability to tailor things because, well, if we let John really excel at business and business mathematics and accounting and, and take courses like business law and after he's blown out his, uh, his, his science, take courses like freshwater ecology, which has made me a better fisherman, honestly, uh, and has made me able to do quite a bit of education here on the show for people that have questions about pond and pond management, uh, then, then maybe his scores in overall mathematics will go down, and then that'll hurt the school. So that's, that's part of the issue here. But I, I think the larger issue is that it is now time. It is now time for us to just collectively admit that this experiment in producing cogs to fit in a system, is, it needs to come to an end. It's over. And, and when, you, when you look at this study, the, the real interesting thing, is if school did what it said, which was prepare you to go out, because let's say as it prepares you, I've heard so many commencement speeches, it's prepared you to go out and do whatever it is that you want to do, that stuff like that, then that at least some portion, 10%, 20% of the people that are judged by that very system of being the best of the best would be a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates or a Mark Cuban, or a Mark Zuckerberg, or for, 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 for sake of, uh, you know, like, like sounding arrogant, but a Jack Spearco. Now, I'm not in league with any of these other people I met, but I don't know any valedictorians that basically control and run their own lives. There might be one or two out there. If there are, you can show them to me. I'll acknowledge it. But I wonder how many valedictorians own their own, just own their own business. Right? And it's not like they went to work for a law firm, they became an attorney, and now they practice privately. Not like that. I mean that they have actually built a business. They've built something meaningful, and they've done it themselves. And the, 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 the education they got that was deemed of being the highest success rate in school 
translated into the ability to actually develop and build a business. And I bet you there's almost none. There's almost none. So whether we judge it on the momentous achievements of someone that radically changes the world like an Elon Musk, or we judge it at a relatively low level, which is why I inserted myself into this, of a Jack Spierka or let's say a Brian Black over at ITS Tactical that's built a company that's employing multiple people that started out as a blog. If school's so great, why are none of these people actually able to function on their own and build something on their own? And it's because they don't have it. It's not the school's fault. Don't get me wrong here. I'm actually not picking on the school. It's just that the people that, that absolutely excel in the environment that is the containment of government education, the person that excels there just is not going to be the entrepreneur. They're not going to be. And we know that because why? Because entrepreneurs question the rules. Entrepreneurs say things like you hear me say sometimes. Those of you that say this won't work, I'm not even interested in hearing from you anymore. Because there's so many things you've said wouldn't work that now work that we don't have time for it anymore. That's, that's the mindset of entrepreneurship. We, we just live in a new world. We live in a new world and it's time for a different approach. It's, it's time for an approach that says, yes, we must teach young people basic reading, basic writing, basic mathematics and mathematical concepts, and even basic entry-level algebra. Those things are important because they, they lead to a larger understanding. We need to ensure that they have good quality reading comprehension and research skills. But that's, that's the foundation. That's it. If they have that, then they can go in any specialty they want as young as they want and pursue it as deeply as they want. And people say, well, we can't do that. Here's the thing. When, when people like me say it's time for the government schools to die a deserving death, what a lot of people hear is Jack Spirico doesn't want kids to get educated or he only wants rich kids to get educated or people that can homeschool. Do. No, no, I want all children educated. I just think there's, there's thousands of solutions to this problem. And I want this monolithic, mandatory system that's shoved down our throats removed to free up those solutions so that we can see what they are. And I'm, I'm, listen, because I believe that good ideas don't have to be mandatory, okay? And because I believe that the best ideas and the best implementation of any system will win in the open market. I'm totally fine leaving the government schools in place. What I want is a removal of compulsory education, and I want a removal of the ability of the state to mandate in any way how parents choose to educate their children. And I want every time a student comes out of the education system that the money they said they needed for that, that child to be educated to be returned to the taxpayers that spent the money. So if, if we have, for instance, they say it takes, in the state of Texas, about $12,500 a year per student to educate students in the state of Texas. That means per million students that this, the state and federal government is robbing taxpayers of $1.2 billion to fund their education. 
I want to say it again. For every 100,000 students educated in the state of Texas, every year, every year, this, the, the state, capital S and lowercase x, collectively rob, take money at the point of a gun with force against the will of the taxpayer, $1.2 billion dollars. $1.25 billion, that five matters when it represents $500 million, by the way, okay, um, from taxpayers. That's what it takes, $1.25 billion per 100,000 students, okay? What I'm saying is that means that this year, if Texas says here's our budget and 100,000 students that they expected to come to school go anywhere else, private, charter, um, homeschool, unschool, co-op school. I don't give a shit where they go. That immediately the state should just take 1.2 billion out of that budget and just give it back to taxpayers. Just reduce the taxes. You said you needed 12.5 a student. I, I mean, I used to say let's make the deal about the voucher system and they can keep 80% of the mo or, you know 20% of the money per student at least. No, just to screw it. There's no vouchers. You just give. Whoever paid the taxes, their money back for every student that leaves your system. Now, you want it to get even better? How about this? How about we make it that anybody that donates money to a nonprofit educational solution for children, every dollar that they donate is deductible from their taxes, not as a write-off, because it's already a nonprofit, not as a write-off, but dollar for dollar. If you're going to pay $10,000 in income tax this year and you write a check for $5,000 to fund the education of our children, you now pay $5,000 in income tax. You're still out $10,000, but you've willingly chosen where half of your money went with no limit. You can do that as much as you want to any qualified nonprofit to avoid regulation that educates children. Uh, thanks to a guy I just heard on Vin Armani's podcast, I think that's a great idea for all nonprofits. But what if we just test cased it with education, since it's like one of the biggest markets there is? What if we said to people, yes, you believe in funding education. You can choose to fund education through the public apparatus, or you can f choose to fund education through the nonprofit system. Well, which nonprofits? Any of them that are involved in the direct education of children. Any of them including ones that support public education. I'm not going to put a line in the sand there. Why? Because unlike the statist, I believe that our ideas are superior. See, the statist doesn't believe that their ideas are superior. They believe their ideas are necessary. But if you believe your ideas and your concepts are superior, you don't need force to win. You only need force to win when your ideas are inferior. That's what I think about it. And I'd just like you to kind of think about that um, over your weekend. How could we maybe come at this from a new approach? And I, I want to uh, drop a little bit of a promo for my buddy Vin Armani and a podcast he did on May 22nd of this year, uh, just about a week ago. He had a guy on named Dan Johnson, who is the executive director of the Tax Revolution Institute. And um, he actually, that's one of their plans at reducing taxes and therefore government power is to create these programs instead of having, you know, do the fair tax or the flat tax or whatever, basically allow people to actually deduct their charitable contributions. They've actually been able to work with the state of Arizona and trial this and they've had incredible results with it. 
And what it does is it puts the state on equal footing with all of these other solutions, and they have to, they have to compete in the marketplace of ideas. And, and, and in Arizona, it only affects your state income tax, but it's, it's, it's still the same money. It's still the same money. If you're going to pay the state a thousand bucks this, this year, the lowercase state, for the state income tax, well, well, then you can reduce your taxes, therefore, by a thousand dollars by investing a thousand dollars in a local charities. And it's, it's, it's been amazing, apparently. And they didn't do it with just education. I'm just saying, I really liked what, what Dan Johnson had to say. And the concept of, hey, instead of let's go head to head, Let's actually force the state to compete by using its own mechanisms. And the reason they went to, to nonprofits is because, hey, guess what? They already are highly regulated. You can't say we're not sure about them. You already, you already gave them your approval, state. Shut up. And it's, it's a very interesting. That, now, the program in Arizona has to be in Arizona. Like it has to be local. And they even have a program, like they built a template, like if you, you went to Texas... Well, a Texas citizen would say, well, uh, you know, I, I I don't pay income tax because we don't believe in that here. Tax is theft. Well, you pay sales tax. So they have a basically you spend that program to where merchants can redirect sales tax collections into private uh, private charities, etc. Well, what if I don't like the ones that they're investing in? Well, they would probably tell you as an incentive to get you to shop there, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? So you could then vote with your dollars and therefore your, because it's your tax, just somebody else paying it. I think this guy's pretty innovative. I'm going to reach out to Dan and see if he'd be interested in coming on the show, but I'm also going to put a link to the YouTube video of the podcast Vin did on 52217 with Dan. Dan's the second half if you want to jump ahead to that, though Vin's got some pretty enlightening things to say. On that note, on Monday, I will be doing a live stream with Vin Armani on his podcast. It'll be available then later as a podcast. We're going to be talking about liberty. We're going to be talking about cryptocurrencies. We're going to be talking about the origins of anarchism and voluntarism and agorism and where we think we're headed and how to be more proactive in getting things done and spreading the message that all actions between adults should be consensual. I mean, that's a radical idea, isn't it? That no one should use force, violence, and coercion on other people unless it's in defense. That's crazy talk. We'll talk about how to share that message with the people that aren't awake yet in a way that won't shut them down and close them up. And I think this cat, Dan Johnson, is on to something. Because I, I really liked what he had to say. I want you guys to check this out. Because what he was saying is, when you say you don't want to pay taxes, what people that are not awake yet here is you don't want to solve these problems. You don't want to take care of people. You don't want to help people. Well, the reality is most of us do want to help people. We just don't think government's best at it. And when you listen to it, wait till you hear... How much of your tax dollars actually get to people that need help when they go through that bureaucracy? I'm not going to tell you the number, but when you find out what it is, no matter what you think it is, you're going to be like, holy shit, I didn't know it was that bad. I didn't know it was that bad. Absolutely. Anyway, with that, if you like this show and the work that I do, do consider uh, helping us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com, and from there you can get on over to the Amazon website, do your online shopping, and as long as you're shopping at tspaz.com, you help the survival podcast and the work that we do here. Um, and I also will have an interview, or not an interview, an item of the day every day for you. 
And I have one that I all but forgot about because until I break down and finally buy this new boat I keep talking about, um, I, I don't really do a lot with trailers anymore. But, you know, I used to. And, uh, man, this product is, is just awesome. It's called the Hitchin' Rod. And I, I used to have a cheaper version of this, actually many cheaper versions because they broke. The way the hitching rod works, you get these two uh, bright yellow fiberglass rods with really strong magnets on them. And you take one rod and you stick it on the hitch ball of your truck. And you take the other one and you stick it right in the center of the hitch of your trailer. And then either through your mirror or looking over your shoulder, you back your truck up till those two rods come together. Now, when you do that, since the ball of your truck is lower than the hitch of the trailer, the hitch on the trailer will start to make that rod that's on the hitch ball tip forward, and you just let it tip forward to about 45 degrees, and you are right under your trailer. You stop your truck, you get out, stick that emergency brake on so it don't roll off on you. I know it ain't going to go down the road, but if it rolls a couple inches in that situation, it sucks. You, you've been there. you got to get back in and do it again. right? Lower your trailer down, hook your truck up, turn your... Electronics on, hook your safety chains up, latch your, your hitch down. Take those rods, throw them behind a the truck seat. They're four foot long, but they're just little bitty rods, about as big as your middle finger. Middle finger, your little finger, I meant to say. Um, and they store back there in almost no space at all. And you can stop having people try to give you ground guiding that can't do it because some people can't do it. One of the things the vendor says is, uh, says, imagine the marriages this can save. I don't know about saving marriages, but it might make you a little less, uh, a little less tension in, in some of those situations. Um, I love my wife. She's a really smart person, but ground guide, she is not. Um, and I have a way of ground guiding people to trailers that actually works really good for people that are, have the mindset for trailers and communicating with somebody with your hands. Because you've all had the person that's like waving their hand, and that means le does that mean left or back or what are you doing, right? And there's ways to do that. Oh, there they go. They're upset now. There's ways to do that properly. They are very upset. Anyway, um, there's there, there's ways to do that properly. But I came up with my own way, and I'm going to give it to you if you uh, if you ever need to back a trailer up because I said I would in the review today, and this is pretty cool. All you do. As you take and you make the thumbs up like Fonzie used to, not with both hands, just with one, like your right hand, like, hey, right? But you hold that up at your, like your eye level so the guy in the truck can see it. And what that thumb straight up means is drive your truck straight backwards. That's what that means. And if they need to start moving to the left, you tilt your thumb to the left. And by controlling how fast and how far you go, that tells the person, like, well, you just tilted a little bit. Well, they just start coming a little bit. You want more? You just keep going until you're all the way. If you're all the way down level, that means cut it hard to the left. And if you need them to stop cutting to the left, you start bringing your thumb up like you're running a throttle. And then when you want them straight, you're straight. If you need them to come back to the right, you come back to the right with it. And you just move your thumb like that. And when they get to where they're close to the hitch, where you want them to slow down, you just hold up your, your left hand kind of like a stop. That means slow down. And when you want them to stop, you just put your thumb down. That's it. Now, I used to work construction. We used to pull big, giant underground drilling rigs all over Dallas-Fort Worth. We had huge trucks and huge trailers. And most of the people that I taught this method, either the driver or the ground guide, could do it, and bam. And you know what? There were still some people. This is not a woman thing. Don't blame women for this. It's, uh, there were still some people that could not get it either as a driver or a ground guide, especially as a ground guide. There's some people that, let's just say, spatial perception and hand-based communications is not their strong suit. So what happens when you end up with somebody like that, you, you just get you're done. 
Because they're like, I know that some of you that have driven trailers and had to back them up and stuff like that have just dealt with people where you're like, I can't take this anymore. And they're, they're trying to tell you what to do. And you finally give up. You get out and you look at it and you look at the truck. You get back and you back up a couple feet. You get back out. You eyeball it. You do it again. And you do it completely on your own while they're near nam nam. But I got it. No, you don't. I can't deal with you anymore. Moving your hands like this doesn't tell me what the hell to do. Right? So you do it yourself. If you have these rods, you're done with that. You never have to do it again. So consider getting a set of them if you drive trucks or trailers. The first time you do this by yourself and get down the road with no stress, you'll feel like that $30 bucks is well spent, and for the rest of your life, they're free. That's how I feel about them. They're not for everybody, but for those of you with this situation, this is what you want. Now, I have a link in the ones I bought back when I had my first boat. Um, they look like an, an antenna for a transistor radio, and they have a, a, a little magnet on them. And they have a little foam ball. And you put the two foam balls together. And when you push one down a little bit, you're there. And you get out and you hook them up. But if you are old enough to have had transistor radios with those metal things, what always happens to the metal antenna on a transistor radio? It breaks. Well, what do you think happens when they're attached to hitch balls with trucks backing up at them? They get broken. So they were like 10 bucks. I have a link to show you what they look like. You want to spend cheap on it because you don't do this often. Go ahead. But, I mean, I bought a couple pair a year when I was using my boat every day. And uh, I just think once and done is the way to go. Buy once, cry once, and this time you won't cry. And I'm telling you, it might save your marriage. We've all been there, guys. We know it. And sometimes it's the guy that can't drive or communicate. It's not a woman thing. But you don't need that tension. And sometimes both parties can drive just fine, but neither of them can. Yeah. But if you have to do it by hand, try my thumbs method. It'll make a lot. Maybe I should do a video on that someday. I, I don't know. I have to find someone that can either do it or drive. Anyway, um, with that, let's talk about the song of the day today. It's kind of an interesting song. Good one for a Friday. It's called The Future Is Now by The Offspring. And it's not really like some kind of future-looking thing like you might think. Um, this is by the band The Offspring. And I uh, came on their album called Days Go By. And... Uh, The guy that is, is the, the, the head of the offspring, this guy's awesome. Let me read to you what John Adam had to say about him. He says, I think Dexter Holland, founder and lead singer, is holding out about the true meaning of this song. There are multiple references to civil disruption and the use of the police state to control the citizens. Dexter Holland could be the smartest man in music. Working on his Ph.D. in molecular biology airline transport pilot and flight instructor. He even has his own hot sauce called Gringo Bandito. So holding out, what might he mean by that? Here's what um, uh, Dexter Holland said about this song. He said, you see people on their cell phones constantly. Everyone is in the same room, but no one is looking at each other or speaking. You start to think, does technology really bring us together, or does it isolate us? Does it help us, or does it hurt us? Does it give us more freedom, or does it enslave us in a way? Everyone is tied to his or her device at all time. And one of the, the, the references that John is talking about here is there's a point where he mentions 1984, and he does not mean the year. He means the book by George Orwell. I guarantee you that. Well, what was the, one of the dominating themes in 1984? If you've never read it, I'll just go ahead and tell you. It's the screen. There's a screen everywhere. There's a screen in your house. There's a screen where you work. There's a screen, there's a screen, there's a screen, there's a screen. And at one point, one of the party officials turns his screen off, and one of the characters says, you can turn your screen off? And he said, yes, for high party fish officials at times it's allowed. 
Otherwise, it has to stay on. And of course, the party decides what you're looking at. Oh, wait a minute. But that's not like what we have now, is it? I mean, you look at the screen, but you choose what you look at and what you do with it, and it can educate, entertain, inform a lot of communications between people. But what about when it reaches a point where it actually is destroying communication of the people that are closest to you in favor of people you don't even really know? It's almost like what Dexter's saying to me is, it doesn't matter what's on the screen you're looking at, as long as you're always paying attention to it. And instead of passing a law, we made the screen so engaging that you'll carry it around in your pocket. That's what it sounds to me like this song's about. Um, and think about, once in a while, putting the screen down. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.